The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you pray with me? Father God, we gather together this morning with one very simple request. Would you show us your glory? As we come to behold who you've revealed yourself to be in this holy word, Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what we have heard. Father, cause us to behold your glory. We know that that is where real transformation comes. Seeing you as you really are. Knowing you as you really are. And then charging hard after that all the days of our life. So Father God, we ask you to do this thing which only you can do in the moments to come. For it's in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Go ahead and please return to your feet. I know there's been a, quite a bit of up and down today, but we are not going Catholic. I'm just trying to, find, trying to find our groove here. As you know, we're continuing to read together from the first chapter of Ephesians, this glorious passage, one long sentence in the original Greek, running from verse 3 to verse 14. This is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. We must receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? And then would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So one of the keys to proper biblical interpretation is to watch out for repeating words or phrases. Now you do this almost instinctively in your day-to-day communications. Anytime you're visiting with someone, assuming that the person standing across from you is being thoughtful and intentional in the things that they say, if you take note of the fact that they continually bring something up, 
there's a word, there's a thought, there's an idea that there's a phrase that they continually bring up during that conversation, you know two things. A, that this is something that is really important to them. And that B, this is something they want you to know. Now this can be comical and sometimes a bit maddening in our day-to-day life. We all have that one guy at work that always seems to find a way to talk about his high school football career during every conversation. We, we get it, Bill. You would have made it to the league if you hadn't blown out your knee your sophomore year. But, but the reality is it always comes up because it's important to Bill that you know that he was the best backup running back JV had ever seen. But when what we're dealing with is the Holy Scriptures, when the one doing the talking is the infinitely glorious God of the universe, we do well to perk up and take note anytime we find repetition. So week after week, as we've stood in this place and we've read together, again, from this glorious passage of Scripture, this song of praise from the lips of Paul as he's just overwhelmed with all that God has done, is week after week we've come together and we've read from this passage, I'm sure that you have taken note of specific phrases or ideas that they've stuck out as they've been repeated over and over and over again. They've stuck in your mind. Like the word purpose, for instance. In verse 5, we read that God has predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, we read that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Clearly, it is important to God, and therefore he wants us to take note of the fact that all that he does in the planning and accomplishing and applying of his redemption. See, there's one of those examples of a phrase that I use over and over and over again every week with intention. I want you to know about redemption accomplished and applied. I want you to think about the fact that God has done all that must be done in order for you to be saved, and then by the working of his Holy Spirit, he has applied that to your life. And yet, it's clear that what God wants you to know, it's important to him, therefore it should be important to us, that everything that God has done and is doing in the planning and accomplishing and applying of your redemption is done with purpose. I believe that he does this at least in part because he knows how difficult it is for the human heart to grasp the doctrines of election or predestination. He knows this temptation that we have whenever a preacher stands up in a place like this and says something like, God has chosen before the foundation of the world based not on anything within you, anything that you would done, not even based on a thing like foreseen faith. God has chosen individual, specific people whom he will save. That whenever we hear a thing like this, we can be tempted to throw up our hands and believe then that the whole thing is random, even capricious. And so it seems to me that God is repeatedly using these words, words like the purpose of his will, to make clear that there's absolutely nothing that is haphazard or arbitrary in all the universe, much less in his accomplishment of our redemption. I can almost hear God's voice speaking to us saying, I never said that I didn't have a reason for what I do. I just said those reasons aren't found in you. I have great intent. I have great purpose behind everything that I do. I just didn't need to include you in the planning. So It seems to me that it's important to God that we know. He says it, therefore we must know it, that all these things are carried out in accordance with the purpose of God's will. It's a reminder of God's sovereignty. This means that God has the power and the authority to do absolutely whatever he wants, that nothing can withstand or thwart God's plans. Whatever God wills happens. So clearly it seems important to God, therefore it must be important to us to know that there is absolutely no external limitations on what God does, that God's choices were not somehow limited by that which is presented to him by the universe, 
There's nothing that we have done, even in our sin, that has somehow restricted God's option. That God plans and chooses and does all things in accordance with his good pleasure. Therefore, if anything in all the universe happens, we can know that it must be because it fits within his purpose. It must be in accordance with his will. Clearly, it seems to me that this is a thing which God desires for us to know. But this morning, I want to draw your attention to another repeating theme that we find here in this section of Ephesians chapter 1. I want us to consider together those seven words that we find there at the beginning of verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, you'll recall me telling you during our introduction to this section that this passage we read together, it seems to naturally break up into three units. In verses 3 through 6, we seem to be being told about the work of the Father. Verse 7 to 12 directs our eyes towards the Son. Verses 13 to 14 point us towards the Spirit. All members of the Godhead working together in absolute perfect unity of purpose for the salvation of God's chosen people. At the end of each one of these sections, we find this phrase. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And verse 14, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. God wants you to know about this. This is a thing that is important to God. Oh boy, is this a thing that is important to God. The praise of his glory. This is the very pinnacle of Ephesians chapter 1. I say to you, it's the apex of the entire of Scripture. It is the very zenith of what God desires for you to know. Beyond this, God's glory is the very reason. It is the purpose. It is the goal. It is the true end. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, it is the end for which God has created the world. It is all to the glory of God. You want to know what this word is about? The glory of God. You want to know why you're here? The glory of God. You want to know why lamb tastes so delicious? The glory of God. Why did I feel so happy when Lando held my hand? The glory of God. Why do hugs feel so good? The glory of God. Why are sunsets so beautiful? The glory of God. It is all to the glory of God. Do you ever sit out at night? Look up into outer space and wonder why God saw fit to make 200 billion trillion stars. I didn't just make up that number. You know how big a trillion is? You know how big a billion is on top of a trillion? You know how big 200 billions are on top of a trillion? You want to know why God made so many stars? There may not be people anywhere out there. There may not be any other living organism out there anywhere. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I don't know. But if God saw fit to only work within this planet, to only bring human life to this planet, that only we may know him, do you realize that all the rest of that was just showing off? 200 billion trillion stars to the glory of God, and any single one of them will melt your face off. And he not only breathed them all out, he knows them by name. Clearly, God wants us to know that literally everything, everything that happens, everything that is yet to come, everything that ever will happen, both in heaven and on earth, it is all to the glory of God. If you miss this, you completely miss the purpose for your existence. If you miss this, you'll end up wasting your life, and worse than this, displeasing God. This is the end for which God created you and me and the entire universe. This is the primary concern this is the, the ultimate passion of God. 
the driver behind and the aim beyond, literally everything that God does. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. There is nothing that God is more zealous for. There is nothing that God is more jealous for than the glory of his name. And therefore, literally everything that God does, he does for the sake of the glory of his name. Let me show you one example of this. I've got to, I, will, I will pass out before this is over if I don't slow down. Psalm, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Just linger here for a moment. I know that I'm always up here geeking out about stars and I'm always wondering, just at the moon. The moon's boring. The moon's tiny. The moon doesn't even really do anything. We only get to see one side of the moon. And yet I flip my lid every time I look through my little telescope and I get to behold this thing. But I want you to consider for a moment what God has done. In the beginning, there was only God. God was completely happy and satisfied and lacking of nothing. He existed in perfect satisfaction and perfect unity and perfect love and perfect fellowship within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was not lonely. He did not need anyone to entertain him. He did not need anyone to add to his glory. He had no need of anything whatsoever. That's what it means to be God. And yet for the express purpose of putting his glory on display, his voice thundered out from the darkness. Although I wonder if we can even say that there was a thing yet called darkness. Because darkness is the absence of light. Do you understand? And yet before God spoke, there was no light, there was no matter, there was no energy, there was no space, there was no anywhere for the darkness to actually be. Until God spoke and created it all out of nothing. Ex nihilo. God didn't borrow anybody else's stuff. The stuff, all the stuff that makes up all the stuff, all the space that all the stuff takes up, all the time in which all the stuff exists, it all came from God from nothing. In the beginning, God's creation was dark and formless and void. The voice of the creator came booming out, let there be light, and there was. A thing that had never yet existed thing that existed nowhere other than the minds and the wills and the purposes of God, in that moment, that thing existed, and it was called light. For no purpose other than an outward expression of his eternal power, his divine nature, God spoke, and it was, all for the sake of his glorious grace. On days one to three, we see that God creates places. On day one, we see that he creates outer space. On day two, we see that he creates the skies above and the seas below. On day three, we see that he creates dry land with mountains and fields and forests. So on the first three days, we see that God created spaces. On the next three days, we see that God filled those spaces. On day, on day four, the sun and the moon and the stars to fill that cosmos. On day five, we see the birds to fill the sky and the fish and the whales and the sharks and the thing with the horn, I think it's called a narwhal, created all of those to fill the sea. On day six, he created bugs and livestock and beasts and man. He did it all to the praise of his glory. Somewhere in there, perhaps somewhere before, he created all the angels in heaven. Any one of these angels, just one of these angels, killed 185,000 fighting men, and he didn't even break a sweat. And yet God created too many of them to count, myriads upon myriads. God created them all, not because they were necessary, not because God needed their help. He did it all for the praise of his glory. 
Do you remember that prayer that we used to read together? I've noticed this about myself. I like repetition. I like to stand in this place and over and over and over again drill down on things. And do you remember some years ago when we were in the book of Nehemiah, we stood in this place for month after month and we read that one prayer together, Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 6. As soon as I say it, you're going to remember it. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heaven with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in them, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, and the host of heaven worships you. God created and sustains and maintains all that is to the praise of his glory. This, dear children, is the purpose. This wasn't just a purpose from before the foundation of the world, which is what Paul says here. What was God doing before the foundation of the world? He was contemplating the praise of his own glory. What was God doing in creation? He was manifesting and showing and radiating out to the praise of his glory. What will we be doing at the end of time? We will be singing praises to his glory. Revelation 4.11, we will be singing out, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You want to know what the echoes of eternity sound like? Dear friends, it is this, the praise of the glory of God. The glory that was seen in his making, and providing for and holding together by his providential hand literally everything that is. This is what we were made to see. This is what we were made to behold. This is what we were made to reflect to all the world, the glory of God. But what does the word mean? Glory. We throw that word around a lot. I'm telling you it's the center of the universe. I'm telling you it's God's plan and purpose his ultimate desire for your life and the thing that he's most jealous for. But what is glory? So, my goal for us this morning, frankly, this is the goal of my entire life, my entire ministry, but in a very special and deliberate way this morning, my goal for us is that we would try to understand what these words mean, the glory of God. We cannot very well make God's passion our passion. We cannot very well strive towards God's purpose for us in this life. We cannot find true joy and satisfaction if we don't even understand what God means when he talks about his glory. So this morning, my hope is that we will try to define what this word means, glory. And then, God willing, we'll come back next week and we'll consider together the fuller meaning of this statement to the praise of the glory of his grace. So what is glory? What does that word mean, glory? I've given you a couple of times, a couple of minutes to start thinking through this and we've defined this before in here especially on Wednesday nights we, we come together and we, we think about the glory of God we've unpacked this word before and so I would imagine that if we were just to canvas this room do a very quick poll and, and ask you just to throw out one word that comes into your heart that fills your mind whenever you think about the glory of God I would imagine we get some really solid answers words like majesty holiness and beauty and, and worth I don't think any of those would be very far off now if we begin with some of the most striking pictures in all of scripture the glory of God we would not be able to avoid words like radiance or brilliance or effulgence. We think of a shininess when we think about the glory of God. Those are the things that seem to stand out. I want you to think about Moses when he came down from that mountain after meeting with God. Only but getting a glimpse at God's backward parts. You see, if we can't even look at the sun, which is 93 million miles away without going blind, how much less can we look upon the immediate glory of God and live? So God so Moses, despite all that God had promised him and all that God had done for him and all that God had revealed, he wanted more. He wanted to see the glory of God. So he asked, and of course God's response was, Moses, 
you know this cannot happen. Not only because you were a sinful man, because the creature can never behold the infinite. I will melt your face off. So because of this, Moses, I will carve out a place in this rock, and as I go back, you'll catch but a glance, but a glimpse of my backward parts as I walk away. So that's exactly what happened, and yet so powerful, so radiant, so brilliant as the light of God's glory that as Moses comes down from this mountain, the people gasped in awe. They were, they were, they were filled with terror. The glory, the radiance, the brilliance of God's glory shining in the face of this man. He was a reflection of the glory of God. And even but this mere reflection of the glory of God in the face of a man who had been with God for a moment, this was enough to drive men to terror. They could not bear to see it. This is what we mean, most of us, when we talk about, when we think about the glory of God. We think about this radiance. It's the same light which accompanied Israel throughout all her years wandering in the wilderness. This pillar of cloud and fire leading the people by day and night. This same cloud coming down then to fill the tabernacle. Eventually the temple that would, would, would replace it. The glory of God so thick, so full, so real that no one could even enter in to this place. That this is what we think of when we think of the glory of God. It's a supernatural, an unbearable, an otherworldly light. What it really means, though, it's an assurance that God was with them. That everywhere that God saw fit to make his presence known, everywhere God's blessed presence was most fully felt, it was there that God would be seen shining like the sun. And yet, this light... It is not part of the intrinsic nature of God. God is not made of light or energy or matter because God is not made of anything. God is spirit. God is invisible. God would be completely undetectable and unknowable unless he saw fit to reveal himself to us. And therefore, as a gift to man, in order to make his presence known, in order to make his glory seen, we read in Psalm 104 that God clothed himself with splendor and majesty that he covers himself with light as with a garment. And so it is, not, it is not in any way wrong, it is not inaccurate to speak of God's glory as his radiance, as his brilliance, as this light which is seen anywhere that he is present. Again, this is the language of Scripture. I want you to think about in the beginning, before there was sun and moon and stars, and yet there was light. What was that light? I believe that light to be the glory of God. I want you to think about the announcement of Jesus' birth, the image of the invisible God, the coming Savior of the world. I want you to think about those shepherds out in the field. What was it that struck them most in that moment? It was that the glory of the Lord shone around them. I want you to think about the end of redemptive history, the new heavens and the new earth. The aim, the goal for all of this is that we would be there. Again, I say the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, as St. John records it, Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So absolutely, the glory of God is seen in this incomparable light. If you never move beyond this picture of God's glory as nothing more than his brilliance, his radiance, a thing that you cannot even fully look upon and live, you may do well. And yet there seems to be something more seems to me that this visible radiance that God has created in order to surround himself, in order to reflect his glory to the world, it points to something beyond itself, to something more transcendent, something uncreated, something inherent to the divine nature. I submit to you the true and eternal and unchanging and infinite glory of God, and this is a thing that is much more difficult to explain. I told you I've made this the passion of my life. 
the aim of my entire ministry, and I feel like I'm no closer than when I'd first begun to understanding what this is. So now you'll watch as I flop around like a fish out of water trying to explain it to you. But this word glory in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word kabod. Kabod often refers to something that is weighty or heavy. But we often see it used as a word to ascribe weight or importance to someone's name. Today we might use the word gravitas. I asked my daughters if they knew what that word meant last night and my wife. The word gravitas, it's a heaviness, it's a weightiness, it's an importance. So this is, this is the picture here that comes with the word kabod. And you all know this, there's a certain significance. That might be an even better word. There's a, there's a weighty significance that certain people carry with themselves. It's almost impossible to describe, but you know it. And if they have enough of it, even when you mention their name, you seem to whisper. There seems to be a certain reverent tone with which you mention someone's name, a weight that they carry as they come into a room, a, a certain sincere reverence. The church, we, we strive for that here in this room. On every single Lord's Day, every single Sunday morning, as we gather together as the people of God for the worship of God, we strive for something like this, this weightiness. We seek to see and comprehend the immeasurable glory of God's nature. Not that we're trying to add something to his name, not that we're trying to make him into something that he is not. He is infinitely glorious, and yet we try to gather together with the right tone in light of this. Each Sunday morning we gather, and I, and I pray that you sense this, a sense of sobriety, sincere joy, a seriousness, the holy people of God gathering together to worship the infinitely holy God in his presence. Do you feel that weight? Do you feel the tone? Do you feel the weight of his infinite glory as we come into his presence? Now, we've got to counterbalance that with the reality that this place is home. This place feels like family, and it feels like home. I was so blessed. We had a membership meeting a, a couple of weeks back or last week, something like that. At the end of a membership meeting on a Sunday night, for more than an hour, people just stood around and they visited. Because this feels like a family, and this feels like home. And I praise that. But at the same time, when we gather together in these sacred moments, for this sacred purpose, in this sacred place, I pray that you feel the weight. I was thinking about how that can be. How can kids be doing cartwheels and backbends over here one moment, and the next moment we're falling down to our knees under the weight of the glory of God? And I'd heard a story once, and I had to go look it up to confirm that it was true, but Susanna Wesley, she's the mother of 10 children, including John and Charles Wesley. She was not a rich woman, didn't have a big home, and again, she had 10 children, so you can imagine what her life looked like. She was a great housekeeper. She managed the finances well. Really was a picture of what a godly wife and mother should be. And where does a woman like this go to have these sacred moments? Where does a woman like this go to be alone with God? Well, history tells us that what happened was she would pull up a chair in her kitchen. She would pull her apron up over her head, and every single person in that house knew when mom's apron is over her head, you do not bother her for anything because she is with God. The same kitchen where moments earlier she was baking bread. The same kitchen where moments earlier she was spanking or disciplining one of her children. In that moment, it was sacred. It was there that she was meeting with God. I think that's a picture of what we do in this place, and I pray that you feel it. I pray that you understand there's nothing flippant. There's nothing silly. There's nothing cavalier. There's nothing casual about what we do when we gather together as the people of God on Sunday morning to sing praises to him, to sit under the weight of his word. I pray that even if you cannot adequately express it, even if you cannot define it, you know when you walk into this place, there is a glorious God, and I am his. But still haven't defined the word yet, have we? We're talking all around it. We feel like we're, we're grasping at it, but there's got to be something more, right? 
It seems to me that this word, this word glory, the glory of God, it isn't just the significance that, the, that God's name carries. It isn't just the way that men respond to his name because things like that change. Man isn't always standing in awe of the glory of God. Man isn't always speaking the name of God with reverence. In fact, most people don't. Most men have no concern for the glory of God. Most men don't think twice about taking God's name in vain. And yet the glory of God, it seems to be a thing that simply is. Whether you believe it or not, whether you close your eyes and refuse to see it or not, seems to me that the glory of God simply is. Unchanged by your opinions? Again, no matter how hard you clench your eyes together, it is always there, as brilliant, as radiant, as dazzling as ever before. And so I think there's another sense of this word glory that we're still missing. Something rooted not so much in man's response to God, but in God's very nature and who God is in and of himself. And I think that we can stick with this Old Testament word, kabod, this Old Testament sense of weightiness. I think we can stick there and still see the picture. You see, in the ancient Near East, much like today, a man's worth, his, his value, his reputation amongst other men was very closely tied to his wealth. And the way that you measured a man's wealth was by weight. You took his gold, you took his silver, you took his grain, and you weighed these things to determine their value. Now, the sum of all these things, the sum of all that this man has and the weight that they possess, you might point to that as this man's net worth or the total of his value. I think this is getting close. I think this is getting closer to this picture of kabod. It's the sum total of all that a man is and all that a man has. That a kabod is his intrinsic worth. Again, I say I think this gets us much closer. Again, I want you to think back to someone that walks in a room and just seems to carry this sense of gravity and weight. Think back to a man that walks into a room and he just controls the entire thing, even without saying a word. Now, if possible, try not to think of someone that does this strictly because of fear, because they are harsh or, or, or demanding or ugly in some way. And I would also ask you not to think of someone that commands this kind of respect just because of some office or position that they hold. I'm talking about someone who is truly deserving, truly worthy of all honor and dignity and respect. Now, chances are, if I ask you to describe that person, you would not be able to give me one single reason that you think about them the way that you do. You would not simply be able to point to one trait about this person that defines why they carry so much gravitas. I think this is the word kabod. It's the worth. It's the value. It's the weight of not just one aspect, but all that they are. This gets us closer to the glory of God. Seems to me it's a little bit like trying to define the word beauty. You may be able to tell me things about your wife that you find beautiful. Her hair is beautiful. Her eyes are beautiful. Her smile is beautiful. Even without being able to define what does the word beautiful mean. Even without being able to tell me how all of these pieces come together. Think about the person described, the woman described in the Song of Solomon. She doesn't sound all that beautiful, but I believe in that she is. So that even if you can't define what this thing is, even if you don't know how it all comes together, even if you can't wrap it up in one single sentence, you know I have seen her, and she is beautiful. Think that this paints a picture for us of the glory of God. It's the sum total. It's the preciousness of everything that he is, not just one singular attribute, all of them, and not because of man's opinion. You see, because unlike beauty, glory is not in the eye of the beholder. It's in the intrinsic nature of who God is. He is glorious you see this glory it isn't exactly like god's power or his wisdom or his love or his knowledge this isn't one attribute amongst many 
This is the sum total of all of them. All of God's infinite value, the inf- all of his infinite perfections, all coming together in one thing that we call glory. So in this way, I think God's glory may be something like his holiness. You see, holiness points to God's otherness. And yet we see God's holiness in everything that he does. In God's response in condemning sinners, we see God's holiness on display. In his righteous indignation to evil, we see God's holiness in display. In the reverence with which we approach God in worship, we see his holiness in display. It seems to me as though there are a whole lot of traits of God that all come out of this one sense of holiness. Very similarly, it seems to me that God's glory, that this is the attribute in which all of the others flow into, almost like rivers coming to a sea. But then I feel like I've stepped out of bounds here because God isn't made up of parts. He's not a bunch of divisible attributes. He's not a combination or a bunch of component parts that all come together. God simply is. There's a divine simplicity that God's love is just, that God's judgment is holy, that all of these things, they're just one essence of who is God. And yet this God has revealed himself in accordance with each one of these attributes. So we're not wrong to zero in on any one of them and stand in wonder. And yet we do great damage if we try to divide them out, either trying to divide them from each other or trying to divide them from God. You see, God doesn't have love. God is love. God doesn't possess glory. God is infinitely glorious. Do you see the dilemma I have here? trying to draw your attention to these attributes of God as he's revealed in Scripture, while at the same time making clear these aren't parts. God is not some transformer that calls together a bunch of parts. You take a little bit of glory and a little bit of love and a little bit of wrath and a little bit of grace and a little bit of mercy, and you spit out God. No, 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 no. All these things flow from the being that is God. Glad to see y'all are still as confused as I am. But I do ask you to just sit and feel this for a moment I know this stretches your mind but you must know that we're grasping at something incredible here again this is the reason for your existence people pay thousands of dollars to go and sit with some idiot to tell them what God's purpose is for their life when all they would need to do is open the word and see right here this is the purpose you sit for hours with a man trying to understand what is God's purpose for my life you think that's going to fit into a nice neat tidy box You think it's going to accord with your experiences in this world, with the natural thoughts of fallen man? Again, I say you cannot expect to wrap God up in a box and put him on a shelf. We can't expect things to match up perfectly with anything else we've experienced in this world. That's why I'm grasping at words here, because the human language will always fall short. I I thought about it as I was coming down the hall. It seems to me as though what's happening is we're a people that are trying to look. We're, We're trying to gaze upon the Atlantic Ocean. And, and my job on this particular morning is to stand here and to bring it before you, but I got a thimble to do it. And so I'm running to the sea, and praise God that even though the sea is way beyond my depths, it comes all the way to the shore. I can dip down my little thimble and grab a little bit and come in here, and we can all look at it together. And we're blown away by what we see, but we know that there's so much more beyond it. It's a bit of a helpless feeling at times but it's so good. So I pray that you feel the weight of this. I pray that the Holy Spirit would guard my mouth and he would guard your ears and that somehow you would see a little bit more of who God is in this. Because beyond this, the Bible seems to indicate that God is infinite in his attributes. I mean by this, that if you were to try and sit down and describe God, 
again, looking at the things that God has revealed about himself, that God is love and God is good and God is righteous and God is powerful and God is just, that we can say all of these real and true and beautiful things about God because he's revealed them to us, and yet we can never fully describe God because there's always more. There's always more to learn and more to see and more to love and more to worship. Man will never be able to say, I finally figured out God. We'll never come to the end. This seems to be what the psalmist is reaching for. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We will never fully comprehend all that God is. And more than this, not only is man incapable of giving some exact definition of who God is, but even with regards to the attributes that we do know, we will never be able to fully and exhaustively know even them. Are you with me? Because God isn't just powerful. His power knows no end. God isn't just wise. He is wise beyond measure. Listen to the words of Job 11.7, one of Job's friends. They said some decent, th- decent things, even if they're heart was all out of whack verse 7 can you find out the deep things of God can you find out the limit of the almighty it is higher than heaven what can you do deeper than Sheol what can you know its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea you can't come to the scripture with open eyes and come away feeling like God is just massive you come away recognizing that God is outside of space itself you come to recognize that God is without limits. He is beyond measure in every single imaginable way and even in ways that you haven't yet imagined. Therefore, we will never, ever, even in glory, even in heaven, even when our eyes are no longer clouded by sin, even when our hearts are no longer jaded by selfishness, even when we see Christ Jesus as he is and we become like he is, finite man will never, ever fully and exhaustively know even one single thing about God. You think I've overstepped, haven't you? Think that I've lost my mind. But you must recognize that the finite can never contain the infinite. There's only so much knowledge that your mind can possess because you are the creature. The creature can never contain his creator. Even one thing, even one of the infinite perfections of this one who is God. Therefore, you will never contain all that there is to know about God or even all that there is to know about one aspect, one attribute, one thing that God has revealed about himself, even within your mind, even within your thoughts. That everything that you know about God, you will know perfectly, yet you will never know him fully. Again, I pray that you're still with me. This is deep stuff. This is not the kind of thing that comes in one sitting. It's a thing that might take some time to chew over. And I, I devoted my life to seeing the glory of God, but the thought that a creature, I just told you, incomprehensible is our God. I'm grasping at straws. I'm stretching human language. I'm finding all these tidbits that I can in the word of God, and I'm trying to produce it before you. I'm trying to bring it before you. That God, By this word, God would enlighten your heart, and you should see just a bit more of who he is in his glory. But I wonder perhaps if some of you don't feel a lump in your throat and a tightness in your chest. I think that perhaps is the proper response. I remember as a little boy laying up in my bed at night and I just had this overwhelmed feeling. And I don't know that I can really describe it. I'd imagine some of you know what I'm talking about, but you would have this, I would have this feeling as I sat, laid in my bed and I wouldn't have used these terms, but I just thought about the immensity of God. Just the bigness of space 
or the foreverness of eternity. And I, I just I thought about these terms that were outside of human comprehension, and I felt so very small. I felt so very scared and sad at times, if I'm honest. But the reality is I look backwards, I recognize that's exactly where God wanted me. He knows this temptation within the flesh of men to make much of ourselves, to make little of our sin, to make little of God, and to make much of ourselves. And we believe that we are the center of the universe. So I believe there are times when God just knocks us down to size, through a storm, through a glimpse of outer space, through some sickness, just some magnificent show of who he is and his power, his majesty, and his beauty. And he reminds us exactly who we are and who he is. Knowing that there, under the weight of that glory, we will fall down to our knees and praise. But then I hope that beyond this, I hope beyond the sense of scariness or even fear or sadness that comes, I believe that God wants your heart to leap with the wonder of it all. The promise that there will be no boredom in heaven. There will never be one day that looks like the day before. I was thinking back to the, the weeks or the, or the days, I guess, perhaps, before we delivered our first child, Annie, and we were sitting in this little bitty house over here, which isn't there anymore, but we were sitting in that little bitty house, and we didn't have any money to go do anything, and man, it was too big to get out of the house, and so basically, <laughs> and so basically, we sat around, and we played Hungry Hippo, and guess who, until we were blue in the face. Every day looked like the one before, and we were just waiting to see what was going to come next. This is not a picture of heaven. And I love those, by the way, I love those days. I look back with great fondness on those days of being poor and playing Hungry Hippo until we were blue in the face. But as good as those days were, that's not heaven. There is no boredom. God has assured us at the end of 10,000 years, there will still be more of his love, more of his mercy, more of his power, more of his goodness to behold. Do you understand? You will never fully comprehend any of it. Just when you think that your hearts are going to explode, just when you think that your minds are going to turn to mush, there's more of God to see. There's more of God to discover. There's more of God to love. There's more of God to behold. There's more of God to worship. There's more brilliance right there before you. Always more. You never come to the end of it. You never say, well, we've explored all of heaven. What comes next? I hope you don't mind me quoting a unicorn, but C.S. Lewis, The Last Battle, says this, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, even though I never really knew it. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. Come further up and further in. This is it. This is it. Further up and further in. Realizing that everything in this world is just a shadow. It's just a pointer. It's just a picture of something truer and greater and more magnificent beyond it, namely God. And that in eternity, after billions of trillions of millions of years, there will still be more to see. There will still be more to discover. There will still be more of God yet to be revealed. Take the sum total of this. The sum total of God's infinite perfections. The infinite weight of those infinite perfections. The infinity that it takes to unfold all those infinite perfections. You place them upon a scale and this is the weight of his glory. What man could ever behold such a thing and walk away unchanged? What man could ever truly even gather a glimpse of this and walk away unchanged. 
This is why when we come to the New Testament, we find that the Greek word that is translated glory is doxa. It sounds like our word doxology, doesn't it? Doxology points towards this word of renown or praise or honor. So we find that this isn't just the immeasurable inherent worth of God, the beauty of God, the value of God. It isn't even just his going public with this glory. It isn't even just his display of his, trans, his, his, his intrinsic worth. This the response of man, the proper response of the creature as we think rightly, as we see rightly, as the glory of God enlightens the eyes of our hearts so that we see God as he is in the face of his son, Christ Jesus. The only proper response is this. Have you truly beheld something like this? Have you truly seen something like this? You won't be able to hold it in. I've got to speak or I will burst. I've got to give expression to it or I will die. It's the praise of his glory. Therefore, when we say that we glorify God, when we say that God has chosen to do something to glorify himself, we're not saying that there is something that is added to the nature of God. We're not saying that there's something that we have done to somehow elevate or increase the majesty of God. Rather, we're saying that God has chosen to give us a greater glimpse of himself, revealing just a bit more of who he is. And that in our seeing, in our right seeing of who he is, in our proper response to who he is, we will praise. We will give voice. We will sing. We will worship. We will live to the glory of his name. I pray that now you see that this is the glory of God. I pray you see how it all comes together. I pray how you recognize that when you're seeing an act of love from God, it points us towards his glory. An act of grace, an act of mercy. Yes, even in his wrath and his judgment, we're seeing the glory of God on display. That it all points back to this, his unending, his immeasurable, his transcendent glory. Again, I pray that you don't get wrapped up in any one of these pictures that I've laid before you recognizing that there's something so much deeper and so much greater beyond it all. I pray that under the weight of all of this, that you're driven to your knees in a sense of awe and wonder at the reality that God has chosen to glorify himself in myriad of ways, that there will come a day at the end of time when God will glorify himself in the destruction of sinners, and yet he looks to you as those whom he has chosen as adopted sons, those whom he has welcomed to himself, he looks to you and he says, your life will renowned not to the praise of the glory of my wrath. The end of this thing is to the praise of the glory of my grace. I will be glorified in all men. There is no man that can clench his eyes tightly enough and undo the glory of God. When all is said and done, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God, and every single one of my creatures will be to the praise of my glory. Some glorified in judgment and condemnation and wrath, and some glorified in mercy and grace and adoption as sons. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we believe what we see in your word that we would not be able to search long enough, look high enough, dig deep enough, and somehow find you on our own. That anything that we know about you, we know because you have chosen to reveal it. And yet, not only that you have chosen to reveal it, but that you have given us eyes to rightly behold it. There were many men who have seen many works of your glory and yet walked away completely unimpressed because they did not have eyes to see. So we thank you, Father, that you have not only shown who you are, 
you have not only revealed your glory, but that you have given us eyes to see and hearts to believe that it is real. That it is more to be worth, more to be treasured and valued than anything else in all the world. So, Father, I pray that we would worship now in light of this, not just in light of your glory, but in light of the glory of your grace, which you have bestowed upon us, your chosen children. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen us out from among all the sinful men in this world, that we were once children of wrath, deserving of destruction, and yet, Father, because of nothing within us, there's nothing but an act of grace and goodness on your your behalf, you've called us out of darkness into light, and welcome us into your home. So, Father, be glorified in us now in light of that. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.